Welcome to Desert Island Books, a podcast about reading. I'm your host and resident librarian, Natalie Mason, from the Melbourne Library Service. Joining me is one special guest who will share their top three all-time favourite books. Marie Hardy is a curator, screenwriter, artist, author and immersive theatre maker. She has written for newspapers, magazines and TV shows. She is the co-curator of the literary salon Women of Letters and has been a regular panellist on ABC TV's The Book Club. Marik is currently, and excitingly, the Artistic Director of the Melbourne Writers' Festival and she's sitting directly across from me. Hi Marik, welcome to your desert island. Hi, thanks for having me on this beautiful island. I set it up the way you liked it. Yeah, with lots of shade. Nice. I don't go out in the sun. That's <laughs> because I'm bookish. Yes, yes, exactly. And we're all delicate in the bookish oh, world, man. aren't we? I know sunshine. This hot weather has been making me angry. And you know when it's weather, you get angry at nothing. Because yes. you can't get angry <laughs> at it. But you are. You're like, oh, you... Am I allowed to swear on this island? No. Okay. Well, oh, you... Oh, you... Rogue? Bint. Oh, bint is good. Yeah, whether you bint. I was going with fiend, like you fiendish rogue or something. Yeah, oh, wow, you're going to get into a glove slapping with the weather. (laughs) Don't you know it. (laughs) Luckily for you, I don't have any gloves with me. That is lucky for me, thank goodness. I probably wouldn't slap you, though. I'd slap the weather. You could, because I won't fight back. Um, Is that another bookish trait? No, I'm just, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Ah. Yeah. Speaking of love, would you please reveal the title and author of the first book that you loved so much you have uh, brought it with you today on your desert island? Well, Natalie, this was a big, tough call, and I'm sure a lot of people get uh, cross at you, but they can't stay cross at you because you're so cute. But, um... (laughs) But the three, just three, I best know. ever. You're a monster. I, am. I did. Um, so, you know, I stood in front of my bookshelves crying and telling them all I loved them all, and I this wasn't personal, and Natalie made me do it. So I chose Martin Amos's experience mm. um, as one, just because he's very hit and miss. I've read some of his work, and I'm like, you, you snooty, self-important, pompous. And, the, you know, I've read books of his that are just foof. But Experience is an extraordinary book because it's basically a love letter to his father, Kingsley. And mm. like any – I mean, what Richard Flanagan did with Narrow Road to the Deep North, it's a great gift for any writer to try and understand why their parent parented them the way that they did. Yes. Kingsley Amos was a monster. He was so truly monstrous. I can, I can say, yeah, he was monstrous. He never read Martin's work. Martin spent his whole life trying to impress his father and you get a real sense of that. So it, the book sets out to be a biography of Kingsley, but it's unlike any biography I've ever read because it's Martin interrogating Kingsley, but also the patterns between generations because Kingsley left Martin's mother for another woman and then Martin left his wife and two children for another woman. Yes. And he starts looking at the patterns of familial, um, I don't know, chaos, I suppose, mm. uh, and about both of them as writers. So it's about love. And then the book takes this weird tangent where Martin Amos's cousin was a victim of Fred and Rosemary West in yes. the House of Horrors. Isn't that a terrible... Mm, no one, that's a... I know. Coincidence, I guess, is what I'm... I just meant. a real weird connection to the Fred and Rosemary Re- West story. Yeah. But he is, he is at his best, just a beautiful writer. Mm. And when a beautiful writer stops trying to show off and starts trying to understand themselves and their parent, 
it's a it's I think it's an extraordinary book. I give it to a lot of people. That and the information. I'm about to reread the information, which is my favourite work of fiction of his, um, which is just glorious. I mean, there's certain ways that people like uh, MFK Fisher or Martin Amos. I just read A.A. A. Gill's memoir and you hmm. read them. Uh, Peter Temple's a bit the same. You read them and you just go, oh, oh Kent, Kent Haroof and Elizabeth Strout. Yep. You read them and you just, you have to close the book because the words, you get so drunk on the words. And yeah. Martin Amos at his best is like that. Yeah, it was an, it was an intriguing memoir because it, Examined his own life, also his father's, then went on the tangent for his sort of the disappearance of his cousin. And it was almost like, well, this has to be a work of fiction. There's so many, there's so much storytelling going on here. And that's what I love about it. It's an unconventional memoir form. That's yeah. what I like about it is it's not, you couldn't say that's a biography of Kingsley Amos, mm. but you learn more about Kingsley Amos and the writer themselves, which is a dangerous thing for a writer to put themselves in the work, mm. but it's Martin Amos. So it's just, just beautifully rendered, beautifully structured, and very human. That's my favourite thing about it. What drew you to it in the first instance? I think um, a boy that I loved gave me the information, which was my introduction to Martin Amos, and then that was the second one that um, that I read. And it's just, I mean, the word extraordinary is very fitting in this regard. Hmm. And how long ago was that? Oh, gosh, Natalie. It's um, obviously stayed with you. I'm just wondering how long it's kind of been embedded 15 years ago, maybe, 10 yep. to 15 years. Yeah, within, uh, yeah, over a decade ago. Yeah. But I still, I think, I, because I do love, I love people telling true stories mm. and I guess that's been a motif in my work is I do like to talk about real feelings and real people and my own real feelings and there's, uh, you know, such a lovely authenticity in that. Mm. So when I see something like this, which is not just someone going, I am writing a biography of my father, it's like I am trying to understand the damage that my father inflicted upon me, how I've manifested that in my own life as an artist, as a father, as a person, and it's just it's just done so well. Shall we dance? Pro- progress? Yes. Oh. Shall we dance yes. first? <laughs> I don't want to get sand in my places, but yes, I'll yes. dance. Give it a shake. Yeah. After you do, could you please reveal the title and author of book two? Well, I decided to throw a graphic nov in there. How do you feel about that, Natalie? I feel great. Do, do you? Yes. Good. I'm glad because people can get quite snobbish about graphic novs. But people Aileen, snobby oh, about all snobby kinds about books, of books, you know, yeah. monstrous. Well, let's, let's, there's no snobs on the island. There's literally just you and I. Well, I am quite a snob sometimes. <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> let's talk about like Between the Oceans. And I will, I will stab a person if they tell me they like that book. That book was horrendous. I turn that book around in bookshops. I hide <laughs> it so that person, that author, doesn't make any more money. And I, I remember we book did it on the horrendous. book show. And I remember I read an article because because we finished the show, and Jennifer was talking about this time. She's like. I remember one time I won't do my Jennifer Burton impersonation, but it's very good. Oh, bet. Um, <laughs> I remember one time, and we got it wrong on the panel, and we talked about like between the oceans, and no one liked it on the panel. And then, of course, went on to be this bestseller. And I'm like, we didn't get it wrong. We didn't get it wrong. <laughs> but my quiet crusade to keep turning the book around continues. Anyway, the graphic novel that I've picked it is, yes. is picked is um, Aileen Kaminsky Crumb's Need More Love because hmm. she's my hero. Tell us who she is. She's the wife of the very well-known graphic artist Robert Crumb. Yeah. Uh, the Terry Zwigoff documentary Crumb she's featured in, which is quite old now, but a, a, an incredible documentary. Mm. And I think I became aware of Robert before I became aware of um, Aileen. But 
You know, they draw, again, God, there's a, there's a mo. Oh, I've just found the motif between the three books. <laughs> uh, it's taught me something about myself. There's an authenticity about it. I love yep. Aileen and Robert draw themselves in their marriage. Yep. They're very open about how they feel about, they have a, an open relationship, but they're very honest about their failures in that or their jealousies. Aileen talks a lot about her frustrations as an artist. Um, she's married to a much more famous artist and people don't like when she draws, they revere Robert mm. and they always say, get your wife's ugly scratchings out of the, you know, that she's ruining your art. So she's got this kind of complex about it. She's just raw and unfiltered. She interrogates her own trauma through art, which is the best kind of way to do it. Um, and I mean, art as catharsis is the best thing. And that's a very, <laughs> that's what happens in Martin Amos's book. Are we seeing that I'm seeing and I'm learning I about myself. Um, so yeah, I just love that she's so honest. I think that she heals from being that honest. I think it's helpful to her. I don't think it's self-serving. Um, and I, I love her art too. Is the, is the other thing, but I also just love who she is. She is one person, and through doing Women of Letters for the last seven years, we've met a lot of kind of superheroes. Mm. I could never meet her. I couldn't meet her. I it, could not it meet would Aileen. Bring you to your knees. Yeah. Well, also, she's. I have a picture of her tattooed on a part of my body, and I. You can't meet someone. You've got. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't. Okay. I would. I was once introduced to Patty Smith, and she said, "How are you?" And I said, "Food." And because I was, was I fine? Was I good? Who knows? Why not both? You were both. And she looked at me with pity and then walked away. Truly? Truly. And she, I mean, I really love Patty Smith, but she's no Aileen Crumb is what I would say. <laughs> for, for, me, for me personally, yeah, yeah, like in course. terms of the hero status, yeah. I, there's nothing I could, there's no way I could ever tell her how much she's meant to me over the years and mm. how much her, like without either crying or saying food or... Ugh. I wrote to, I emailed her. She knows I exist. Oh, truly? How did yeah. this happen? Well, because I wanted her to do Women of Letters because yep. she and Robert live in rural France and they were in New York um, mm. and I was trying to get her to do the New York show. And, I mean, I was writing to her agent going, I am in love with her. And I, the good thing is <laughs> I had all these. help? <laughs> well, yes, because I, you know, people write to, fa you know, I'm programming a festival at the moment. You write to publishers going, I'm a huge fan of blah, blah, blah. Because, you, you know, you, yeah. firstly you are, but also you want that artist to feel like. But I had like examples of articles where I'd called Aileen Kaminsky-Crumb my hero. And I'm yeah. like, no, I really, I really <laughs> love her and I really want her to do the show. So she wrote back to me and I like, wet my pants. But I could do it on email because, you know, I had a bit of time to choose my words and play it a bit cool. Hmm. And how did you come across Aileen's work? Well, through Robert. Yeah. Um, God, how did I find Crumb's work? I think probably the doco introduced yeah. me to his work. I mean, I would have been... You know, dating lots of widow art boys, and I was into widow art. You know, I think that doco came out in like ninety. It was the nineties or something. Yeah. So I just finished high school. Hmm. Um, yeah, and I just you know that outsider weird. I mean, his cartoons are so amazing. They're and quite out there. I think that's yeah, what's pretty so provocative about them. Yeah, I mean, he must be in his late seventies now. Yeah, and uh, I went to see. He and Aileen had a drawn together exhibition in New York when I was there January last oh, wow. year. I went and saw it and had a little cry. We, oh, it's just beautiful. Their marriage, I feel like that's going to sound creepy, Hardy. I feel like I'm a part of their marriage, but. Well, they, leave, they lay it open and they let they you do. in. Well, I'm in. 
Yeah. Yeah. If they, I mean, it's open, so yeah. why not? Well, I mean, David Sedaris calls what he does the illusion of intimacy. Yeah. So you feel like you know David Sedaris and you don't. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've grown, I wrote a fan letter to David Sedaris when I was 17 or 18 and he wrote back. So I'm very invested in him and Hugh. And So you truly life. do know him. Yeah, I do. Well, <laughs> the thing is, as I've gotten older, I feel like I understand the tricks that yeah. he uses in his, and I say that in a, in a loving way, but yeah. I understand the devices that he uses to give that illusion of intimacy. And do you think the crumbs do no, the same thing? No, I don't. I don't. I think that's pretty unfiltered and that's maybe why mm. I'm still reading Aileen and I don't read David Sedaris as much anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That's why Aileen's here. She's all around us. She sure is. Yeah. What a place to be, surrounded by Aileen. Now I'm going to not have any words. (laughs) While you compose yourself, Mm. I'm going to ask you kindly to please reveal the title and author of the third book that you've brought with you today. I don't know how to talk about this book without crying, but um, Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut. And... um, you know, I said before, I can pick the thread between them. It's catharsis through art. It's yeah. authenticity. Kurt Vonnegut was a living angel. Mm. He was. He saw the world in the most beautiful, dreadful, terrible way and reflected it back in a way that we needed to see. I think he just sees it the way it is. Not yeah. necessarily in a terrible way, but he just oh, sees, he sees it Oh, he sees all the things that are bad about humankind, but he also sees hope. Mm. which is just such a beautiful combination. And so Vonnegut himself, the author, survived. the. He was at the bombing of Dresden. So this book is a – it's not even a fictional account of the bombing of Dresden. It's the most kook plot to pitch to someone. This guy starts – he gets abducted by aliens and they can see across time and they realise that time is a concept and a lifetime is a – and he jumps back and forth through time and the bombing of Dresden. And I, I would – if someone pitched me that book, I'd tell them to rack off, frankly, and stop bothering me. But it sounds nuts. It's so perfect, Natalie. That book is so, so beautiful and more so when you realise it's Vonnegut thinking about his own trauma. And mm. Vonnegut saw something in the bombing of Dresden that he did not know how to un- – he didn't understand because the pain and the trauma that he saw was so intense, the human suffering that he saw was so intense, the death and the destruction, and he turned it into that book. That's how he made sense of it was he invented the character of Billy Pilgrim and turned it into something beautiful. It gave him everything <clears> he saw. <throat> well, yeah, it's just as um, – beautiful video poet called Steve Roganbuck who I just love so much and um, he toured Australia a couple of years ago and I held him in my arms for longer than he was comfortable with Mm -hmm. but I really am like I'm just so in love with you but one of my favorite poems of his is make something beautiful before you are dead and I think that's what that's kind of my life motto and that's what Vonnegut's done with this book as well Mm. I miss him I wish Kurt Vonnegut was still alive it would be terrible for him he'd be like a billion years old but I'd want to hear what he has to say about Trump I want to you know I want to see him reflect back all these terrible things in that world in our world in a hopeful jewel is anyone right like him no I can't think of anyone Modern now, if that's what you mean. Mm. There are people who try to. Yeah. Um, there's lots of hopeful people. I mean, Roganbuck is not a terrible... I think Steve Roganbuck, I think it's a, what a wild connection because he's this kind of 
dorky kid from Tucson who mm. makes these amazing YouTube poems. And I would say he reminds me of Vonnegut. You know who else reminds me of Vonnegut? None of these people are, but first dog on the moon. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Funny you should say that. Yeah. Because yeah, he that works. absorbs really horrific things. And I know, I know him well, and I know... Absorbing those things hurts him deeply oh, in the way that it hurt Vonnegut. Vonnegut mm. was really pained by the world. Mm. But the way they both reflected that outwards in a hopeful way is just, it's a gift. It's art as a gift. Mm. And Vonnegut, how did you find him? Oh, probably some dude I was dating again. So the thing is, you know, I got a really good education in music and literature through falling in love with people, which you should do yeah. if you fall in love with the right people. My boyfriend, when I was 20, I got this amazing education in 60s psychedelia and garage and the birds and early stones and, oh, man, that was that was incredible. Gene Clark and... Um, and he that was mixtape days, so I got a lot yep. of amazing mixtapes with MC5 on them. And um, and then I dated people who read great books, and I read great books, and, you know, it extended outwards. It's that sharing of I love this so much and it's pressed into your hands. And with that kind of recommendation and that kind of force, like you must read this. Yeah, that's how I – so that's how I found John Fonte, who was an yep. early – um, Bukowski read John Fontaine and then wanted to be a writer and a boy that I was just in love with said you must read this and it just sort of seeps into your skin after that doesn't it? Do you associate those writers with those people? They stick together in your mind? Fontaine does with that one person but I can't remember who gave me Vonnegut isn't that interesting? I just yeah. took him got, got, rid of, got rid of the dude <laughs> <laughs> and what's amazing is that I mean I come from a very bookish family and I come from a you know my grandfather was an author and when my great auntie died, we inherited her book collection, which is the most amazing eclectic collection of like showbiz um, bios oh, wow. and Marx Brothers. And I read all the I read all these showbiz bios and stuff. But those kind of more left of centre people like Vonnegut and Fonte and Bukowski, and they all came later for mm. me. And what are you reading at the moment? Well, everything because yeah, now that I'm running a writers festival, I try I, what it's such a lovely thing to invite a writer knowing their work and trying to create an event that will speak to them and with them and for them because I you know I'm only doing this job because I like people so I want to make things that they like because I know what it's like to be a writer on a writers festival circuit you kind of get pushed on a stage and you do your interview with someone from Radio National and then you go back to your hotel so I'm trying to find something that will speak to them in a safe way um so well, no, I can't tell you what I'm reading. Oh, of course you can't. All right, tell me. Of course you can't. Why don't you tell me the last Oops. book that you read and loved that has nothing to do with the oh, writers' okay. festival? Oh, okay. Yeah, I can. I can absolutely do that. Well, I read because I read a lot over summer. Hmm. I the Kent Kent Haruf. Yep. I can't. I actually feel distressed that he's no longer with us. And yeah. and my. I'm going to read, eventually I'll read the last, I mean, I, the last book he wrote was Our Souls at Night, but I haven't read all of his work yet and I'm going to get to that point and I just feel sad mm. thinking about it because, oh gosh, the Plain Song series, it's the trilogy, it's, it's. Oh, I feel quite emotional. <laughs> Were you rereading uh, those over summer no, or reading for the no, first time? No, it was time? for the first time. It's a real so joy, it isn't so it? so good. So I just want to, uh, yeah, I just want to. Make it last. God, I do feel really sad about Kent Haruf. Mm. Sorry. It's true. Um, I mean, it's the same. 
it's the same as your sort of crumb analogy. You get inside their lives. And Haruf is a world builder. But her, Yeah, but Haruf, I mean, it's fiction. But like, still, it oh, feels yeah, so it tell, real. It tells you, I mean, he's got that kind of Vonnegut hope as well, doesn't he? Yeah. He, he writes some pretty bleak characters. But you know them. Like oh, you recognise parts of yourself in them. You recognise people you know in them. Particularly he's, with the trilogy, the Plain Song trilogy, where you go back and... Um, and Elizabeth Strout as well. Same. They're the two that I read over summer who, oh, really? as far Both. as I know, are not coming to the festival. Kent Haroof particularly is not coming to the festival. Oh, sadly. So I can reveal to you. I mean, I would probably bribe someone to try and get Elizabeth Strout here, but I don't know if she travels very much. But... uh yeah, she'd be someone that I wouldn't know how to talk to either. How are you functioning having read both of them over summer? Oh, it was heaven. It was I mean, just heaven. Heaven to read them both, but then to be bereft without them. Oh, yeah, I mean, but then I, you know, I, I, MFK Fisher is my go-to feel better about the world. I've okay. got um, The Gastronomic Me, and um, which is just her whole collection of all of her writing. Yeah, there's just so many good books, Natalie. You yep. know that. Aren't we, aren't we lucky? Oh, so lucky. We're so lucky. So lucky. Do you ever um, wish that the publishing industry would just hit pause so you can catch up on everything that you've missed before they start putting out new stuff? No, because my needs change as I finish a book and then I to try and do that instinctive, what do I feel like? Here's the stack. Mm. And if there's a new thing on the stack and maybe that's the thing, you know, it's like, what, do I, what, does, what does my soul need right now? What do yeah. I need? Yeah. I do need. I do know that. Yeah, I know you <laughs> I do. know that yeah, very well. Yeah, you're nodding at me very knowingly. Yes, the headphones yeah. are going to fall off. Yeah. I'm nodding so much. <laughs> thank you for joining oh, me for on your desert island. Well, thanks for having me on your desert island. That's fine. I'm not sure how this Enjoy works. Enjoy the coconuts. Oh, thank you. You can read this episode's show notes, including a list of all the books we've discussed on the show today, on our Goodreads page. And you can find that on the Melbourne Library Service website, www.melbournelibraryservice.com.au, on Look for the Read page. I'd also love to hear about your Desert Island books. Tweet at Melb Library with the hashtag Desert Island Books. And don't forget you can subscribe and download Desert Island Books episodes at iTunes by searching for Melbourne Library Service. As this is a brand new podcast, we would love you to leave a review on iTunes it helps other people find out about the podcast get some reading ideas and it's a really lovely thing to do until next time desert island bookers happy reading